we come to Exodus chapter 19 and 20, to the giving of the law, and we consider Israel now having come out of Egypt in the and by the mighty hand of God. You hear even in the text that we read today how he lifted them up on eagles' wings, uh, which is also reminiscent of uh, Revelation uh, 12, which we read uh, not too long ago, where he bears them up on eagles' wings and flies them, flies the woman out away from the dragon and out into the wilderness. Um, and here he says, you know, I, I, I bore you out on eagles' wings. Um, he flies them out of there, and, and he does this by his, by his mighty hand, uh, bringing the ten plagues against Pharaoh, consuming them in the Red Sea, and delivering them out into the wilderness. There in the wilderness, as we considered last week, Israel manifested their hearts, their grumbling hearts, repetitively grumbling against the Lord in ways that are shocking to us uh, because it seems so ridiculous given what they had just seen. But nonetheless, they grumbled consistently against the Lord and God, who is rich in mercy, continued to provide for them. In the end, his mercy, uh, while it endures forever in Christ, uh, he is slow to anger, but he, his, his anger will come. It does boil over. Uh, you know, it's, he's slow to anger, but it's not that he's not angry. And we learn that in, in this story. I mean, eventually this group that he is so patient with and who he persistently and consistently shows mercy to will eventually die in the wilderness and not be allowed to enter the land. Um, again, that's not a statement as to whether or not they are eternally saved, but they are, they are not allowed to enter that land. <clears throat> And, you know, God's patience will not endure uh, f- forever in that sense that it doesn't matter what we do. No, eventually his, his, his patience will uh, not be overcome. I mean, it's, it's his character that's consistent, but his anger will be manifested. Even if it's in discipline, as we read in Hebrews 12 today. Uh, and we ought to learn that. He's slow to anger, but he does get angry. So Israel is persistent in their grumbling, but God is rich in mercy and he grants grace to them and continually provides for them. And we were, we were in awe of that last week. Um, and, of course, we remembered that we are not much different. We have, seen, we have seen the mighty acts of God just as Israel saw them, not only in the cross, but, my goodness gracious, in the daily acts and works of providence. Uh, it's just that we don't often have eyes to see it. But I was telling my students in class um, a couple weeks ago as we're studying providence, it's like, you know, uh, God's God's work to us. If you have eyes to see in God's providence, you will see the providing hand. You'll see manna. You'll see manna all around you, right? As we talked about in Sunday school, that turkey sandwich that you eat for lunch is manna. It's just as much gift from God as manna from heaven. Um, we have seen the, the all-providing hand of God again and again and again, and yet we grumble and we grumble and we grumble. But the Lord is patient with us, and he does provide, and he provides for Israel. And though there's other stories to consider, which we're skipping over, we come today to the base of Mount Sinai. You know, you'll remember when they were in Egypt, God said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might come out and worship me. Right? They, they, they've come out for this purpose. I mean, they were brought out. Remember, he even says to Moses in Exodus 3, when you get back here to this mountain, this will be a sign to you that it was me doing this the whole time, as if this is the sign Moses needed to know that the Lord has been at work in all this. But that's, remember, God gave Moses in Exodus 3 the sign, but it was a future sign. When you get back here with these people, 
and worship me on this mountain, you'll know that it was me doing all this. And so here they are. They were brought out here that God might reestablish his covenant with them. Now, the covenant of God with his people is a covenant that he made with Adam. He reinforces with Noah. He makes his covenant with Abram, reinforces it with Isaac and Jacob, and now renews here with Israel as they come to Mount Sinai. God's formal covenantal relationship, this binding of himself to his people and his people to him. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's essentially the, the essence of this covenant. And here they come now to the base of Mount Sinai and they are going to reestablish and renew the covenant. It'll be a new manifestation. And each of these covenantal moments from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses, we see the covenant um, becoming clearer, or we get a different facet of what God's promises are to his people. And in Exodus 20, the facet of this covenant that we get is essentially that of God's law. So we get detailed explanations of what God desires for his people, and also detailed information as to how he will relate to his people and how his people will relate to him. And that will come later as we hear about the building of the tabernacle. And all the ordinances that God says, hey, here's the way we're going to relate to each other. Okay, it's starting to be defined now. And here are the particular things you're going to do. And, and here's how you're going to approach me. And when you approach me, here's what you're going to wear. And here's what the building will look like. And here's who has access here. And here's what you're going to be able to eat. And here's what you don't eat. And here's how you deal with this. And here's how you deal with that. So God's really going to expand now and give a clarity as to how this relationship is going to work between his people and him and his people and themselves. So that's the context. And that's how we get where we are. Now, again, our desire here in these stories is to see Christ, not just to give historical narrative but to see Christ. And so we want to do that as we come to Exodus 19 and 20. And then next week, we're going to consider Exodus 32, where we're going to see Israel quickly fall short with regards to the uh, covenantal commitments that they make. <clears throat> okay, what I'd like to do today as we think about this text is just to reflect and contemplate on what we see right in front of us. And we'll actually, I think, follow these same points next week. So the, 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 the system that we'll use to look at this text, we'll use next week also. And so I want us to think about three things. And it's just literally by looking at the painting. If we had the painting of this scene in front of us, we would look at three things. I would want to draw your attention to three things. First, draw your attention to what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. And then I would want to draw your attention to what's happening on the top of the mountain. And then I'd want to draw your attention to what's happening in the middle of the mountain between both those. So if it were a painting, I'd say, hey, let's, let's look over here. What do you see going on over here? And let's, let's look down at what the artist is doing for us down here. What do, what do you see happening? And we would consider the bottom, the top of the mountain. Well, let's start, let's start at the top because at the top of the mountain is God, right? At the top of the mountain is God. 
God is the one who initiates this, right? The people don't come out to the wilderness and initiate some relationship with God. No, all of this, and this is important for us to think about, right? These stories are fundamental undergirding stories for our understanding of who we are as Christians, the whole story of the Bible, how we relate to God. And one thing that should strike us about this whole story is it is God-directed. This is not the people approaching God and saying, hey, listen, can we have a relationship? This is God coming to his people and saying, we're going to have a relationship. And I'm getting you out of here. And I'm bringing you to this mountain. Now, when I get to this mountain, now here's the relationship we're going to have. Let me establish the covenantal relationship with you. This is important for us to acknowledge that at the very beginning, this is God-directed, God-governed, God-initiated. God brings his people to this mountain. And now he will establish a relationship with them. But where is God? Well, God is in this thick cloud. God is in the midst of smoke and fire. God is on top of the mountain as this darkness settles down upon it, as smoke covers the entire mountain. There is thunder and there are flashes of lightning and there's a trumpet blast that as he speaks grows louder and louder and louder. So much so that the people will eventually say, ah, Moses, don't let that happen again. We don't want God to speak to us. Let's have God speak to you and then you come speak to us. How about that? And we'll speak to you and then you go talk to God for us. This is the picture of God that we get in this story. It's an intimidating picture as God descends to engage his people, but now comes in the holy fire and lightning and thunder of the law. As he speaks his word and as he speaks the word, the earth trembles and the mountain shakes and the people are scared to death. This is an awesome picture of the presence and the power of God. And one, as I said earlier today, that we as modern evangelicals are really not familiar with. We have way too low a view of God. We have way too familiar a view of God. We forget what it means for God to be holy. What it means for God to be other. As I've said before, we really just think God is a better version of us. A perfect version of us. Just like a really powerful creature. That's how we tend to think of him. Because when we try to get past that, to think about the infinite, eternal, immutable God, our brains sizzle. We can't. So it, we, our minds blow up. We need something. We, we try to relate him to something we know. And to be fair, God does this in the Bible when he, when he gives us fathers. right? When he gives us fathers and he says, you'll honor your mother and your father. But then he says, but I'm the father. He's being intentional, right? He's giving us a picture in our human fathers of something, of one slice of what God is, a very important one because he takes that name, you know, Father. But our fathers are so imperfect. Our fathers are so bad at imaging God. I know that I have distorted my children's view of God 
just by who I am. I have done unbelievable damage to my children just in being their dad. Because when my children think of God, they'll think of me. Inevitably. When they hear God as father, I'm what they know as father. And, and whatever my, whatever my, my, um, my positives are, okay, whatever, whatever I bring to the table as a dad, it pales in comparison to the misrepresentation that I have given to my children about what God is as their father. So God does give us these things. He gives us images when he tells us, you know, he tells the story of the prodigal son, and, and again, he's a father there, and this is the kind of father. So he gives us images to think of, finite, creaturely images. But we have to be very careful that we don't try to drag the infinite God down into those images and contain him there. They're, they're, they're just little glimpses of what he is in his essence. And we would do well to reflect upon passages like this and say, when I encounter God, and just think about where you encounter God if you would say you encounter him. Certainly here on a Sunday morning, we would hope. Maybe as you pray, you know, and, and uh, you know, at, at, the, at, at the table before you go off to work or in bed when you come home or wherever, or when you read your Bible, when it, wherever it is you would say, this is where I encounter God, you would do well to ask, does it bear any resemblance to this? Do my knees get weak? Do I tremble at his holy presence? You know, why does the author of Hebrews have to say, so strengthen the feeble knees and the, the, the arms that hang down? Well, do, do we have this experience because we think of God that way? Now, of course, we're in a different place than they were. I know we come to know this God through Jesus Christ. We have a mediator, right? That's, that's the end of the sermon. And we could jump there and know that, well, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that in Romans 5. For we've been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to tremble anymore. I, I, I get that. I get that. I understand that we can come boldly into his throne of grace. But do you think of God this way? Do you think that it's an amazing thing that you have peace with God? When you pray to him and it's a warm, fuzzy feeling, you know, and you get those warm feelings inside because you just spent half an hour with God or 15 minutes or 25 seconds with him or whatever it is, and it just feels good because you've communed with your father and it feels good. Are you amazed by that? That you just came into the presence of an all-holy, consuming fire and survived. And were blessed rather than burned and destroyed. Well, again, we just have too low, too low view of God. But look! Look in this story at what's happening on the top of the mountain. And be thrown off by it. Be thrown off because you don't typically think of God this way. And then ask the Lord in his mercy to help you. I certainly have to do the same thing. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't, don't think that I have this vision of God that's like, I too, I know because I'm a creature, I know my own heart here, can kind of bring God down to the profane, to the common. But he is a holy fire. 
thunder, lightning, earthquakes. Again, it reminds me of Revelation because in Revelation, as you go through the cycles of the visions of God, you get this picture of the throne room of God and each time it adds, it starts with thunder and lightnings and then it becomes thunder, lightnings and earthquake and then it becomes thunder, lightning, earthquake and hail and then it becomes thunder and lightning and earthquakes like we've never seen before. You know, it ramps up throughout the book. But those images in Revelation are being pulled from here. That God's throne is the throne of judgment. And he is going to judge the earth. Now, before we leave the top of the mountain, let me just give you one warning. Because sometimes we think, and and maybe not us, but we hear it often that, well, yeah, 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 Bill, that's the God of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was like that. In the New Testament, he's meek and mild. In the New Testament, he's more of a God of love. In the Old Testament, he's a God of law, justice, vengeance. You slip off, bang, he opens up the earth, swallows you, brings it back. That's the Old Testament God. The New Testament God is, is let's love, let's love our neighbors, let's not be mean, let, you know, that kind of God. I want to guard you, I want to, I want, I'm sure we don't believe such things, but you will hear it. You will hear it a lot. It's a very common way of thinking. And I want to push back on it and make sure you're able to push back on it. Go back and read Hebrews 12, which was our New Testament reading. At the end of that text, if I can find it quickly, at the end of that text, so he, he's talking about how we have a, a, a better mediator than they had, and, and you know, it, it's, we don't come to this mountain in which it says, if you touch it, you'll die. You know, we don't come to that mountain. We come to the, the holy mountain of Zion and so forth. And, and that's true, and, and that's wonderful. But, but, and we've got to think about the implications of that. It's true. We're, we, we do have a mediator who gives us peace with God. But then, but then listen to this. This is how that chapter ended that Mark read. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not uh, escape who refused him who spoke on earth... Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. You know, God coming down on Mount Sinai, that's big and awesome and whoa, but it's on a, it's on a physical mountain somewhere in the Middle East. It's like that, that's, a little, that's a little dramatic play going on out there. It's a, it's a little object lesson. But, but we stand before the God who doesn't descend upon some little mountain in Saudi Arabia. But the God who speaks from heaven. Be careful we don't refuse him. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is, not was, our God is a consuming fire. It's, it's not just, well, the God of the Old Testament was really scary, but the God of the New Testament, is that, that, that was, that's over now. Now it's a new way of relating to us. No, that is our God. In fact, our God is much more intense. I mean, he's not much more, because it's still him, but I'm saying, it's not as if the New Testament kind of lets the foot off the pedal. 
No, there he just shook earth. The author of Hebrews is saying, but the day is coming when he's going to shake heaven and earth. That was just a little display. That was just engaging these people. But one day he's going to engage all the world. Oh, this is God just coming and speaking on top of a mountain. Now he speaks from heaven. Right? Even think about the Ten Commandments as we talked about. We get the Ten Commandments. Jesus comes along, Jesus meek and mild, and he takes law and says, let me explain it to you. Oh, it's much deeper than you thought. It's not just about murder with the hands. It's murder with the heart. It's not just adultery with the body. It's adultery with the heart. I will expose your sin even deeper than you thought you knew it back then when it was the time of the law. So be careful that we don't fall into that trap of all that harsh stuff and all that language of judgment and fire and brimstone. And that was, that was Old Testament stuff. No, that is the one true, eternal, immutable God. And what we will learn is that is a little shadow of how he relates to us. And if we are not in Christ then that little shadow is a mere shadow of a greater reality of judgment that awaits us in the new covenant era. Just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. Because on the cross, the fire of Mount Sinai, the thunder, the darkness, the cloud, the earthquake comes on Jesus. And if we are not in Jesus... It will come upon us at the end of the age. Do not let the New Testament, Old Testament divide. Divide God in your mind. So that the Old Testament God is kind of harsh. New Testament God is a God of love. No, the Old Testament God is a God of justice and a God of love. He loves these people. He has provided for these people. He has delivered these people. And in the new covenant, he loves us. Hell makes any of the judgments in the Old Testament just go away. Just vanish. Like, how could God swallow people up in the earth? Like, hell just, it's gone. You just think it's not even anything to be compared. So if you thought that that was hard, what about the New Testament reality in which justice don't make that mistake. So this is our God. This is our God. If he's unfamiliar to you, then you need to read and you need to pray because this is the God that we, we need to know. This is the God to whom we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer and when we pray in our prayer. And there he is atop the mountain with fire and light. <clears throat> now what's happening on the bottom of the mountain? Well, on the bottom of the mountain are the people. There we are. If we're anywhere in this story, if we're depicted anywhere in this story, there you are down there. You're in this group, right? You're down in this group of people at the base of the mountain, schlubbing their way out, you know, out of the Red Sea and onto the Promised Land with this little pit stop here at Mount Sinai where we're going to renew the covenant with God. And who are these people? Well, we've already seen them. And one, we know who they are because they're us. But we've already seen them. Right? They're a group of complainers. They're a group of grumblers. 
They are a group of people who, though they have witnessed the amazing grace of God and the amazing deliverance of God, nonetheless say, yeah, but what about? But how come I don't have? As they make their way across the wilderness, seeing deliverance after deliverance after deliverance. Here they come to the base of the mountain, and God comes on top of the mountain to engage them. And notice the first way that God engages them in verses 5 and following at the beginning of, of chapter 19 is he says, Now therefore, or excuse me, verse 4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's interesting to me that the first word that God has to them is words reminding them of his grace to them. This is also true in the Ten Commandments. If you just flip over to, to chapter 20, next page, he says this. and God, So now he's going to give the Ten Commandments, right? The law. But the way he begins the law is with grace. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who what? He doesn't say, I'm the Lord your God who demands absolute conformity to law. I am the Lord your God who deserves perfect obedience. I am the Lord your God who, you know, those would all be right and good and true things. But it's interesting that when God establishes this relationship with these people at the bottom of the mountain, he begins with grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. This is really, really important. Because it reminds us again that the relationship between God and man is not one in which God is at the top of the mountain and waits for you to make your way up to him and then find yourself acceptable. Like you climb these ten rungs, you make your way up this ladder of the law, you clean up your act, and then I will deliver you. I, you will prove yourself worthy to me, and I will be good to you. Which, by the way, is the way of every other religion. All religions essentially have that pattern. God atop the mountain, waiting for man to ascend to him by his obedience or by his efforts or by her conformity, by their law-keeping, by whatever. In, in Hinduism, it happens over multitudes of lives and reincarnation, but you're, you're essentially weaving around the mountain on your way up, down, 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 up, up, down, up, 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 until finally, after thousands of lives, perhaps, you eventually reach and you're at the top. For Islam, it's, it's climbing the ladder of the five pillars and being compliant so that one day Allah will accept you. It's whatever. All these, all these religions have this way of climbing this ladder of obedience while God essentially waits for you and, and then determines whether or not you're truly acceptable. But this is not... Christianity is a different species of thing. It's, it's not... It's not just a different religious version, a different flavor at the Baskin-Robbins of, of religion, right? It's a different thing. You can't get it at Baskin-Robbins. It's a different thing. Because ours is not the story of a God who waits for you to have conformity and then says, okay, fine, we're on good terms. It's a God who descends to us in our misery and grants to us everything he demands of us and brings us to himself. 
the, the law is given here in a context of grace. Notice it's not the law given back in Egypt. He says, now look, you take care of these things, I'll get you out of here. He comes to a miserable people and delivers them. And in the deliverance, they're miserable. And he keeps delivering them. Then he brings them out there and goes, okay, you see that I love you. I think we've established that. You see how I've been gracious to you. You see how I initiated and brought you out of that slavery. Now, have no other gods before me. Again, it's not only God initiated, it's God graciously initiated. It begins with grace. You saw how I bore you up on eagle's wings. Now I'm going to talk to you and scare the crap out of you because you're sinners. But this is me doing it on the other side of my grace already given to you. He's brought them out on eagle's wings. That's important, very important for us to remember that all this is God initiated, but it's initiated with grace. So who are these people at the bottom of the mountain? They are sinners. You and I are sinners. But not only are they sinners, they are sinners who are a little overconfident. (laughs) Because when the Lord comes and speaks to Moses and says, look, I'm going to tell you all these things to do, the people respond back and they say to Moses, tell the Lord this, all that he commands, we will surely do. They, they might want to take that back in a couple chapters. But they're a little overconfident. They're sinners who are a little self-reliant, maybe. And saying, yes, we're in. Basically what they're trying to say is we're in. We're into this covenantal relationship. But there's a little lack of humility there. Right? God gives the law to them, and then they say, we're on it, we'll do it. I think what might better have been said was the prayer that St. Augustine gave. Do you all know this at the beginning of the confession? Uh, no, it's not in the beginning of the confessions. It's like midway through the confessions. And then he repeats it several times throughout the end of the confessions when he says, um, Father, command of me whatever you will, but grant to me that which you command. Command of me whatever you will. I'm your humble servant. There's nothing that you there's not nothing that's too much for you to command of me. I owe you everything. So command of me whatever you will. I just ask that you would grant to me the thing you command of me. Because what he's acknowledging there is I'm helpless. You command you have every right to command anything of me. I'm just acknowledging at the outset I am not going to be able to accomplish any of it. And this got him in huge trouble with this British monk named Pelagius who wanted to take him up on this and was one of the great fights of the you know, late early church, right? The beginning, sort of right there at the beginning of the Middle Ages. The fight between Augustine and Pelagius over is man able or is man not able to do what God commands. Well, we can talk about that debate more in Sunday school. But, but Augustine approaches this with humility. I know at the bottom of the mountain you are worthy of anything you command of me, but I'm also acknowledging who I am. And I know I can't do it. So if it's going to get done, I'm going to need you to grant to me that which you command. This is not what Israel says. Israel says, tell the Lord whatever he commands, we're on it. We will do it. We're in agreement. But as we know, this will not go well for them. Now, top of the mountain, God in his holiness. Bottom of the mountain, Israel in their grumbling 
overconfident sinfulness and they're trembling in fear rightly so in the presence of God now what's going on between them and the mountain well uh, between them and the top of the mountain a couple things one there's a big old barrier the Lord comes to Moses and he says hey listen tell the people to get ready they are not suitable as they are I'm going to speak to them so tell them to get ready Remember, they're going to have to wash their clothes, he told them. There's going to have to be these consecrations. Something's going to have to change. But he commands them what to do. Put on these clothes. And then he says, down in verse 11, tell them to be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So if this guy, if somebody wanders over there and says, you know what, I want to I have this communion with God. I'm going up the mountain. I'm, I'm going to touch the mountain. God's presence, his holy presence, this mountain has now become holy, like the ground in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. Take off your shoes, this is holy ground. I want to go engage this holiness. I'm going to touch this mountain. If he does that, he's going to die. And if you touch him, you're going to die. So don't do it. Stone him from a distance or shoot him with an arrow. Not only him, but even if a beast, if one of your horses walks over there, one of your oxen walks over and nibbles off the mountain, he's got to be shot with an arrow. So you know what? Build boundaries. So they, they got to build a big old fence lest somebody go running over there and decide to get up the mountain. Or they're playing Frisbee and they throw their Frisbee over there. And, it goes, and then they decide to go get it. Let it go. Don't touch the mountain. Now, I titled this sermon off of this point. The title of my sermon is Do Not Enter. Because there's a really important premise given to us here. Something we're learning. We got this all the way back in Genesis 3. Again, we want to tie these stories together. Go back to Genesis 3 when Adam is being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You'll remember, it's not just that the Lord said, okay, you know, you know, come in whenever you want. You know, I'm, I'm putting you out of the garden, but you're welcome back here anytime you'd like. You know, you always have a place here. That's not what happened, right? You remember. He put him out of the Garden of Eden and then put an angel with a flaming sword between Adam and the garden with a big sign basically said, do not enter. If you come back to come in this house, you'll be slain with this flaming sword. Well, that same image is now being depicted for us here. Just as God's presence is associated with the garden, now God's presence is associated with the mountain, and there's a big old sign on the door saying, do not enter. If you try to touch this mountain, you will be slain with the flaming sword. God's judgment must come down upon you, and you will die. That is, we have the principle here that because of whatever happened back there in Genesis 3, it has caused a rift between us and God that makes it so that we do not have access to him. And yet, God is approaching us and saying, all right, I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to give you the law. You're going to be my people. But don't you forget that while all this is being done, God's mercy and his grace, it is being done in a context in which you do not have access to him. If you touch that mountain, you will 
die. He is a consuming fire. And as I tell my students, he's a consuming fire and you are gasoline. And when gasoline comes near fire, fire wins. Fire consumes gasoline. Gasoline must be kept away from fire. And that's the reality. That's what our sin has made us. It's made us combustible. And it has to be kept away from fire. So between the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain is a big old barrier that keeps these two apart. And they're kept apart not because just you're going to profane God's holy mountain. That's not what the fence is for. The fence is for you. Because if you touch the mountain, you will die. We can talk about in Sunday school again also how this is the idea of how we fence the Lord's table before we take the Lord's supper. We call it that. It's called fencing the table. Why, when I say this is a sacrament for the people of God, if you're baptized, if you're a member of a church, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, this sacrament is for you. It's not because you're going to profane God's thing, though that's a problem. It's for your sake, lest you eat or drink judgment upon yourself, right? It's, it's to keep you away for your own good if you are not in Christ. Okay, so top of the mountain, holiness, bottom of the mountain, sinners, middle of the mountain, barrier. But something else is in the middle of the mountain. Moses. Moses is also in the middle of the mountain because God says, Moses, you can touch the mountain. You can come up here. In fact, what's going to happen is you're going to come up to me and I'm going to talk to you and you're going to go back down. Now, first, he talks in the presence of all the people. The people are scared out of their wits and they say, Moses, don't let that happen again. You do it. And so God has established the relationship. This is important for Israel to recognize. You do not want to engage me directly. It will not end well. But I have provided, I have provided one to do it. Moses will stand in between, and Moses is going to have to bear with the thunder and the lightning and the darkness and the trembling. Moses is going to have to endure that so that he can then come talk to you face-to-face, man-to-man, and bring to you the oracles of God. And then he will come to me, and he will speak to me. And that's how the relationship will be. Now, of course, and we'll talk about this even more next week, so we don't, I don't want to blow all my points for that. But it's important for us to see here that God in all of this do not enter, nonetheless, has provided a means for that relationship to happen by providing a mediator, one who can come in between and with whom God may speak so that he can have this relationship with man. But, but, to enter that mountain is to die. You must be shot with an arrow. You must be stoned. How can Moses, how can Moses go on here and not receive the punishment? Is Moses any better than they? Moses himself is a sinner. And therefore we know, and we'll pick the, again, we'll make the point more strongly next week. But what we know is that ultimately Moses is an insufficient mediator. We know that at the end, even Moses isn't going to be allowed to enter the land, right? Moses cannot get it done. Just like the mountain is a shadow of the greater things to come, Moses is a shadow of the greater things to come. We're going to need a greater mediator because we're approaching a greater mountain. And our mediator is one who will be able to stand between the two, 
and bring peace. Who will be able perfectly as man to represent man to God, but who as God will be able to represent perfectly God to man. And yes, how do you bridge that gap without stepping on the mountain as man and dying? Well, our mediator will die. Our mediator will do what has to be done. He will get between and take the oracles of God and bring them to man and bring sinful man, cleansing him and purifying him and bring him to God. Oh, but it will be costly. Because to step on that mountain for man, as man, bearing the sin of man, means he must perish. And at Golgotha, when he goes to the cross, again, this is why it looks so much like Sinai. Darkness, thunderings, the earth quakes, very Sinai-like. As the judgment of Sinai, the law in all of its weight, all of the consuming fire comes down upon him. As we stand, the grumblers, complainers, golden calf worshippers are down there at the bottom of the mountain partying. There in the middle of the mountain is our mediator bearing our sin, taking the judgment of the consuming fire, becoming gasoline and meeting the consuming fire and feeling the combustion of hell so that he can provide the way of access for us up that mountain. The reason why the author of Hebrews can now say in Hebrews 4, therefore let us enter boldly before his throne of grace is because the path of peace has been established by the combustion that took place in the person of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The hymn that we're going to sing today uh, to conclude, hymn 127, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonders, one of my favorite hymns. I was introduced to it at RTS the first time I'd heard it. And to be honest, I've never heard it sung in any church I've ever been to. I've never heard it. And when I've referenced it to other churches, I, like, I'll quote from it. Sometimes I'll ask when I'm speaking in different, different places, do any of you know this song? No one knows it. It's funny. I don't know why. But it's one of my favorite hymns, maybe because it takes me back to my seminary days. But it goes like this. Let us love and sing and wonder Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. This is the story of our Savior, of our mediator, our greater Moses, who brings reconciliation between fire and gasoline, initiated by God and as God and as man hushes the lost loud thunder and quenches in his own being Mount Sinai's flame so that we who are hidden behind him, who are hidden in him, who are clothed in him, going back to the language of Genesis 3, in the animal skins, hidden in him like we were in the ark of Noah. We who are hidden and clothed in him are safe. I just saw... Last night I was watching a documentary called City in the Sky on aviation and airports, the whole operation of airports. Fascinating. Fascinating what's going on while we're in the airport drinking our Starbucks, what's happening all around us, underneath us. I mean, it's incredible, really incredible. But they were talking uh, in in – so one is on airport operations and the next one is on flying and what's happening when you're in the air and the construction of your plane and all this kind of thing. 
But Boeing, Boeing has developed, you know, uh, their, their, I think it's a 787. They didn't make out of aluminum, but they made it out of the carbon composite. So it's basically like plastic fiber. And it's amazing because it's light. They save 25% on fuel. So it's incredible. But the problem is if lightning strikes it, it blows up. <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right, stay off the 787. No, 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 don't, don't. The, every other plane's aluminum, and what happens, they say every single plane, on average, gets struck by lightning once a year. And a, a plane lasts about 25 years. So our planes that we're flying on will get struck by lightning 25 times over the course of its tenure. So, you, But aluminum planes, when the lightning strikes it, it, it just disperses the, the, uh, the electricity around the body of the plane. It never affects us. But... But in the carbon composite, when it strikes it, it just bursts a big hole, a big hole in it, and, the, and it, go, it would go down. So they really struggle with this. It's great to have something with fuel efficiency, but basically you're going to lose one plane a year. So that wouldn't be good. But what they did, what they discovered was if they take a very thin the mesh, a very thin mesh of copper, and put it, glue it over the whole plane, it would disperse the... It would disperse the lightning. They tried it, and it worked. So when you fly in your 787 Dreamliner, you're flying in a plastic airplane. But that's coated with a very thin level of copper. And that copper then absorbs the, the uh, electric, electricity of the lightning and disperses it. And you sit in there drinking your, drinking your coffee. No worse for the wear. And there is a metaphor for us with our mediator because we are hidden inside of him and as the lightning bolt of God's judgment strikes, it's taken fully by him and you are hidden and fly safely off to your destination. This is why we come. This is what, this is what Jesus has done for us. He has borne that and all the judgment of it. All right, next week we're going to come back to the same principle and look at the work of our mediator. But now we'll start to learn. We don't learn a lot about our mediator in this story. We just know he's there. He's allowed to go up. He's allowed to come down. Next week, we'll get a little bit more of a vision into him and through him to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who has become a lightning rod bearing the judgment for us that we in the house, we in the Dreamliner might fly safely into our destination. For Father, we deserve the judgment that he receives. We are the sinners at the base of the mountain who have no access to you and who are not allowed to enter. But you, by your grace, initiate. You, by your grace, provide a way. You, by your grace, provide the atoning sacrifice, the cleansing, the renewal, the fresh set of clothes, the fireproof gear that we need to be able to stand in your presence. And we thank you for it. We thank you. Father, help us to see through the scriptures who you are. Forgive us for having too low a view, too familiar a view of you. You are holy indeed, a consuming fire. And we thank you that we have the privilege to come and to worship you through Jesus Christ. We ask all this and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.